All right, well, here we go. I uh, wanted to talk through an idea called famous last words. This could be kind of fun, couldn't it, right? If we're really serious about last words. Uh, last words before you die. These are our kind of funny things. I've got a few of these. Does anybody know who Humphrey Bogart is? Humphrey Bogart, a few of you are old enough to know who Humphrey Bogart is. He was a actor that was a very famous actor. And his famous last words before he died were this. He said, I should never switched from scotch to martinis. How many of you would say, never mind, don't, don't answer that question. <laughs> JFK, the wonderful president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Moments before he was shot, his last words were, no, you certainly can't. His words were in response to Nellie Connolly, who was the wife of the governor, John Connolly, as she had commented, commented to him and said, you certainly can't say that the people of Dallas haven't given you a nice welcome, Mr. President. Whew. There was a civil, civil War Confederate general named Martin Green, and his last words, Mark, you were this. He said, a bullet has not yet been molded that will kill me. Moments later, <laughs> you know what happened. He was shot and killed, right? And uh, for those of you that are a little bit might, like me, your famous last words might be, dude, watch this. And you just know it's not going to be a good thing. <laughs> watch this, mom. Any parents ever hear that and you just cringe in fear? That's me. So we've been in the book of Joshua for the last umpteen weeks. And we are going to be in the last two chapters here in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be able to look and see Joshua's life is coming to an end. He's lived a long life. He's fulfilled everything that God has put before him. And, and the last two chapters of Joshua are a couple of farewell addresses. Now, many of the leaders of the Bible throughout their time, when they were approaching death, they would give a last words. They would give a final speech before they died. Jacob, after his family had settled into Egypt, he prayed over his sons, each of them. And he, he, he pointed them towards the promised land and pointed them towards the possession of the promised land that God was going to give them many years later. Similarly, Moses, who was a great leader, he blessed each tribe uh, before God, right before God showed him the promised land. And so now here's Joshua's turn. They're living in the land that God has promised them. And he's ready to give his farewell addresses. Joshua had been a leader in Israel in some capacity for the last 50 plus years. He had followed many years of, of battles, of, of, of wars, of things that are happening. They've seen many enemies subdued. And now Joshua has leaders in place who are going to protect the God-given boundaries that God had given them. He's got priests established that are going to protect the spiritual boundaries that God has given him. And now, in his last words, he is concerned for the faithfulness of Israel, both now and for the future. So in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua gives his final words to the entire congregation. But today we're going to be in Joshua chapter 23. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Joshua 23, if you need a Bible, if you just put your hand up, we've got an usher in the back. He'd love to be able to come and give one of these to you. We're in Joshua chapter 23. And in Joshua chapter 23, we're going to see that this is Joshua's last words to the leaders. 
The big idea that Joshua is going to have for these leaders, the big idea throughout the entire chapter, is he's going to say, remember God's faithfulness. Joshua is calling the leaders to remember the faithfulness of God, to be a witness about who God is and about the character that God has showed them to talk about it, to teach, to make sure that, that God's faithfulness, make sure that doesn't die with that generation, but to cont- carry that message forward so the future generations would know of the faithfulness of God. So as I said, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 23. If you have one of these Bibles, we are on page 170. And uh, before we read a couple of these verses, would you pray with me? God, we are so excited to be here today to be in your house, to be with your people. God, this is one of my favorite places to be with some of my favorite people. And I thank you for the opportunity to gather here to worship and to praise you. And God, as we open up your word, I'm thankful that we get to hear from you today. We aren't hearing from some guy spouting off his thoughts, but God, we want to hear from you. We want your word to speak. God, you have said in your word that your word does not return void. So God, I pray for everyone in here that you would speak to them clearly that you would speak to them just what they need to hear today. God, we pray for your spirit to be with us, that you would put out the distractions, that you would allow allow us this opportunity to connect with you. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Joshua chapter chapter 23, let's read the first couple of verses. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies... And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all of Israel, its leaders and its heads and its judges and its officers. And he said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. Joshua would have been about 110 years old at this point. He says in verse 3, and he says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua has been the leader of Israel during the conquest of the land. And notice, he's not taking any credit for himself for the victories that they fought. He's not saying, hey, we won because I'm such a clever leader. No, he's saying God was the reason for the victories. He's pointing to God. <clears throat> look, further, look further down the chapter into verse, uh, verse 9 and 10. He says, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. And drop down and look at verse 14 as well. Verse 14 says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and in your souls, All of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. Do you get the idea that Joshua is trying to get across to these leaders? He's trying to say, leaders, remember. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done for us. Don't forget He's saying, here, the main battles are over. We are in possession of the land. We are living in the land. And now that the battles are over, your job, your next job, is now to remember that God has been completely, 100% faithful to you. He's saying, 
Leaders, you got to think back. Remember when we came into the promised land? Remember when we came to the Jordan River and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant? Remember when they put their foot in the Jordan River? Remember what happened? Remember that God caused the river to stop flowing and allowed all million plus of us Israelites to cross the river on dry riverbed. He's saying, remember Jericho. Remember that stronghold, that city of Jericho with their their impenetrable walls. He says, remember those walls seem so daunting. And remember when God knocked the walls down and gave us victory over the city of Jericho. He's saying, remember, remember that little city of Ai, that little city. Remember how we went without God's blessing. We went out on our own way and that little city of Ai humiliated us. But then when we decided to do things God's way and to seek God's presence, remember how God gave us a crushing victory over the little city of Ai. He's saying, remember, remember, remember when the southern kingdoms formed an alliance to come and fight against us. And how we prayed to God and God listened to the prayers of man. And God caused the sun to stand still for a whole day. Remember when God did that. And then remember when God gave us that victory. He's saying, remember, remember the northern kingdom, the northern kingdoms, and they came to form an alliance. Remember, they had every numerical and technological advantage over us. On paper, there's no way we could win. Remember, God gave us the victory. He's saying, remember, remember when God promised to our forefather Abraham. Remember when when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. He's saying, look, hundreds of years later, we are standing in possession of this land. We have seen God's faithfulness. He's saying, remember the faithfulness of God. Death is coming to Joshua. And his charge to the leaders, these leaders who have seen God's faithfulness throughout the entire conquest, these leaders who will continue to lead Israel after Joshua is dead. His charge to them is that they would be spiritual anchors for Israel, that they would remember God's faithfulness and they would never, ever forget it. But he says, not only do I want you to, to remember God's faithfulness, I also want you to be a witness to God's faithfulness. That means that you have to talk about the things that you know that God is. It means you have to talk about it with your children and with your neighbors and with your coworkers and with everybody around you. You have to teach the faithfulness of God to the future generations. See, Joshua's mind, in Joshua's mind, he is sure that Israel as a nation, if they're going to remain completely faithful to God, if they're going to remain devoted to the one true God, then he is Joshua is firm in his mind. In order for that to happen, we have to remember who God is. We have to remember God's faithfulness to our people. He believed that God is faithful. And people, in response to God's faithfulness, that they too will be faithful. If they remember God's faithfulness to them, then Joshua believes that they will respond to God with their faithfulness to him. He understood that it was required for them if they're going to remain faithful to God that they had to remember the faithfulness of God. You know, sometimes people believe uh, that Christianity is some kind of blind leap of faith. 
completely void of history or fact or reason. People say, well, why would I want to believe in that Christianity? Christianity is, is void of fact or reason or history. But I would say on the contrary, our faith in Jesus is rooted in history. It has been passed on and on and on through this book of men who witnessed these things. Real historical events. We may not be eyewitnesses to the things that happened here, but we have witnesses who recorded what they saw, who, who wrote these things. And this is what the Bible is. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle John, this is what he wrote. He said, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, Jesus, he's saying, we have, we have heard with our ears, Jesus talk. We have seen Jesus with our eyes. We have touched him with our hands. And he says, the life, verse two, he says, the life that was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the father and which was made manifest to us. He's saying this book right here, we are telling you the things that we have seen. We are telling you the things that we have heard. They're not just pulled out of some random myth. John is saying, hey, we are telling you the exact things that we have seen. The exact things that we have heard. Christianity is not just some blind leap of faith. It is rooted in history. Let me ask you, how many of you have been to Hawaii? Lucky dogs. That means that the rest of you are like me and you're dreaming someday of going to Hawaii, right? Let me ask you a question. For those of you that have not been to Hawaii, how do you know it's there? How do you really know it's there? I mean, have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you been there? Have you seen it for yourself? The beaches, the resorts, the tourists, the volcanoes. Have you actually seen these things? I mean, if you haven't seen them, how do you know for sure that they're actually real? It's because you have faith. You believe other people who have been there and have given a witness to what they've seen and to what they have experienced. You have not seen it, but you have faith in what other people have said and their witness. They have told you that there's all these amazing beaches. They have told you about the resorts. They have told you about the, uh, about the volcanoes. They've told you about all these amazing and remarkable things. And because they have told you, you have had faith in what they said and you have believed in it. Let me ask you this. How did the Titanic crash? What about the Titanic? Hit an iceberg, right? Let me ask you this. How do you know it hit an iceberg? Were you there? Do you have a picture of the iceberg that the Titanic hit? Anybody have a picture of it? Now, I know some of you are old enough where you could have been there, but were you actually there? You believe the witnesses. You believe the stories. You believe the stories of the people who survived and came back and said, hey, this is what happened. You believe the stories in the history books. You believe the stories on the History Channel. You believe Wikipedia. You believe the things that people have said about it. See, Joshua is doing the same thing. He's saying, hey, Israel, our responsibility here is to always remember how God has been faithful to us. And we need to remember God's faithfulness. And we need to be witnesses of God's faithfulness. We have seen God be faithful in so many ways. 
And we need to tell everybody about God's faithfulness so that they will believe in who God is. They will believe that God is who he says he is. So this becomes the foundation of the entire chapter. Everything else is built upon this foundation. That Israel was to remember the faithfulness of God. So what's going to happen next is Joshua is going to say, now because of God's faithfulness, because of God, because of who he is, because of who he says he is, we need to respond. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 and 5, it says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised. See, Joshua here is saying there's more work to do. There's more battles to fight. There's more lands to conquer. And you, he's saying, you can know that God will be faithful in helping you do this work because God has been faithful in every way before. And continues in verse Verse 6, he says, therefore, therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. You see that word therefore in verse 6? is a word that probably should be circled or underlined in your Bible. It's saying, verse 6, therefore, it's saying because of what we have just heard, because God is faithful to us, because we understand that God is faithful, therefore, it requires a response. Because God is faithful, therefore, he says, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the work, in the book of the law of Moses. He says, Because God is faithful, therefore, we are to be obedient to God's word. Because God is faithful, we are to be obedient to God's word. I'm going to throw caution to the wind here. You know, sometimes in church, in Christianity, the idea of obedience, it gets abused. It gets distorted. And it gets used sinfully by by pastors and by churches which promote an idea of legalism, which reduces our Christian faith to nothing more than a bunch of rules that we have to try our best on our own to follow. And no matter what, we always come up short. See, this call to obedience here is not a, a ploy to guilt trip people to obey and to conform to whatever standard. The Christian faith, the salvation that the Bible talks about, it doesn't come from obedience. Salvation comes from the grace of God. That while we were yet sinners, before we had done anything to make ourselves look good to God, before we had obeyed anything that God says, Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our salvation, our standing with God, it comes through the faith and the sinless life that Jesus lived. And it comes through the death that he experienced for each and every one of us on the cross. See, he made the first move. God took the first step. He loved us first. He initiated salvation on our behalf. We don't have anything to offer to God. 
We don't offer him anything. We don't offer him our obedience in an effort to appease God so we can get out of, so we can get a get out of hell free card. No, we don't offer anything to God. In his love, he moved first on our behalf so that if and when we surrender our lives to him, we would be saved. See, Joshua here is, is describing the Christian faith. He's saying, because of what God has done, because of the love that God has given to us, that changes us. And in response to that love, in response to that faithfulness, we surrender to him. We surrender to his word. We follow him. We are obedient to his word. We don't do that to earn God's love. He loved us first. We love because he first loved us. We obey because he is faithful to us. Our obedience then is a heartfelt response to the love and the faithfulness that God has already bestowed to every one of us. I heard a story a couple years ago that, that really just paints this picture. There was a, there was a noble family, <clears throat> you know, one of those aristocratic families long ago. And they had a son. And this young man, he grew up and he dreaded the, the staunchy ways of his parents. He dreaded the aristocratic life. And really, this young man, it all came for a head to him one point when, when his mom and dad said, hey, we have a prearranged marriage for you. And he thought, this is the dumbest thing in the world. I am supposed to marry some woman that I don't even know. I don't love her. I don't even like her that much. I don't want to spend my life with her just because we're aristocrats and just because it's good for our family. Man, this is dumb. I don't like this. And the day came for him to get married. And he obeyed mom and dad. He followed through with the marriage. And what he did for the next several years, he did everything in his power to undermine that marriage. He did everything in his power to abuse his wife, to treat her unfairly, to, to make her feel horrible because he wanted everyone to know, I do not want to be in this marriage. I don't want to be in this life. A couple years later, he got a sickness. He got a disease to the point that he was on his deathbed, fearing death. And that wife, that wife took care of him hand and foot. That wife cleaned up after him. That wife fed him, brought him medication, took care of him in every way. Eventually, she even nursed him back to health. And when he got back to, to good health, he had a different feeling towards his wife. She loved him first. And in response to that love, he served her and loved her faithfully every day forward throughout the rest of his life. This is the picture of what it means when God loves us first. And in response to that love, we say, God, I'll obey you. God, I will follow you because you are faithful. Because you are good. Because you took the first step to love me, even when I was not worthy of any love. So obedience to God's word is our first response to God's love and God's faithfulness. But there's a second response. Look again at verses 7 and 8. They say that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. He says, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. He says we're to cling to God. The second response is that we cling to God. 
Now, this word cling in the original Hebrew is, is interesting. If we think back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, this is the same word that is used in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 says that a man shall leave his father and mother. And the King James Version says he shall leave his father and mother and he shall cleave to his wife. The English Standard Version says a man should leave his father and mother and he should hold fast to his wife. And the NIV version, New International Version, says a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall unite to his wife. You see, these words cling, hold to, cleave, unite, they're all the same Hebrew word. They have the same idea, the same meaning. This word is a word that describes something that is joined together and it is inseparable. It describes the most intimate of relationships. You know why I love the fact that he says cling to God? Because clinging has an idea of faithfulness to it. It denotes faithfulness regardless of circumstances, regardless of personal happiness. He's saying cling, hold on, don't let go. See, Joshua, Joshua knows the routine. He knows that we are always worshiping. We are always worshiping. Every one of us, every one of us we are always worshiping something. Either we are worshiping God, the creator, who created us, who created the world and everything in it. Or we are worshiping a part of God's creation. And we're taking something that God created and we're trying to turn that into a God. The Canaanite nation is all around Israel. They don't worship the one true God. They don't worship the creator. They've taken a portion of God's creation, specifically sexuality. And they've, they've, they've taken a portion of God's creation <coughs> and they worship their fertility, their, their fertility gods with all sorts of sordid and sensual things that wouldn't make it into a PG-13 movie. And they call that worship. Joshua knows the ordeal. He knows the circumstance that Israel is in. There's all of this around them. And he knows that the temptation for Israel will be that they would mix with these nations around them. That they would look and say, man, man, that looks so much better than what I have. That looks so much better than what I'm experiencing here. And he fears that they will begin to adopt to the pagan beliefs. That they would begin to worship those false gods. That they would worship the creation as God itself instead of the creator. So because of God's faithfulness, because of God's faithfulness, Joshua says, cling to God. He says, hold on to dear life. Even when the world seems so tempting, even when everybody around you doesn't believe in your God and mocks you for your belief, he says, cling to God. He's saying, don't let go. We go through hard times. We go through dry seasons. We go through seasons of doubt. Why is it in the church that we think doubt is such a horrible thing? Why can't we be honest and real with our doubt? Don't be afraid of your doubt. But make sure, even in that doubt, you're still cling to who God is. You're still holding on to God and saying, God, I don't understand this. God, I'm struggling with this. But I'm still believing that you are who you say you are. Cling to God. This is an act of faithfulness. This is an act of devotion to God. Clinging to God is more than just singing a couple of songs 
It's more than just listening to a sermon. It's more than just feeding the homeless. It's an understanding that God is faithful. That God loves each one of us beyond what we could ever understand. And because of who God is, we cling to him. Even when the world and the culture and the pressure around us says to let go. Let me give you a, an example of clinging to God before we move on. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story in the New Testament of, of a father who's really, he's at the end of his rope. He's got a son who is possessed by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit is controlling his son and causing all sorts of problems. And this dad has tried everything to help his son. He's tried everything he could possibly do to no avail. And he's at the end of his rope. And one day he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, Jesus, we've tried everything. We've even, I've even brought my son to your disciples and your disciples could not heal him. And he says, Jesus, have compassion on us. Jesus looks at him and he says, anything is possible for those who believe. And the father's response in verse 24 is, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. He's saying, God, I'm clinging to you. He's saying, Jesus, I'm clinging to who you are. I'm, I have nothing else to stand on. I'm, I'm beaten on every side. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. I have nothing left. But Jesus, I'm clinging to who you are. I'm clinging to who the witnesses say you are. They say that you are good. I'm clinging to that. They say, Jesus, that you are faithful. I'm clinging to that. They say that you are love. And I'm clinging to that because I have nothing else to cling to. I don't know how it works. I don't understand why I am where I am. But God, I'm clinging to you. Jesus, I'm clinging that you are the son of the one true God. Because I have nothing else to hold on to. So he says, I do believe. But would you help me in my unbelief? Would you help me in my doubt? I think this is a picture of clinging to God, even when we don't understand, even when the pressures around us say, man, you just got to let go. You hold on for dear life. Say, I refuse to let go. And God, would you help me now where I need it? Joshua has one more response for Israel because of God's faithfulness. It starts in verse nine of our text. He says, in verse 9, for the Lord has driven out before you the great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And it says in verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. You see that word, therefore, again? Because of God's faithfulness. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. He says, for if you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. He's saying because of God's faithfulness, we are to love God more than anything else. Because God has been faithful, because God has loved us, we are to love him more than we love anything else. The command in chapter 11 is very simple. To love 
the Lord your God. But the way he says it is kind of weird. He says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. It's kind of, kind of weird to say, be very careful to love God. Joshua knows the temptation. He describes it in verse 12. He says the temptation will be to turn back and to cling to the remnant of these nations, to cling to the world and the culture around. He, he uses that same word, cling, to describe how we often become intimately involved and, and devoted to the ways of the world, to the society, to the culture, to the way that everybody says you're supposed to live. See, I think, I think the idea is he's saying, is we're always clinging to something. Everyone, well, every one of us, we are always clinging to something. A job, a relationship, a bottle, an addiction, self-esteem. Every one of us, we are always clinging to something. But you see, as we become a Christian, as we surrender our life to him, we become a part of the bride of Christ. And what happens is when we cling to the world standards, when we allow the culture and society's intellectuals to determine our beliefs, we're nothing more than an unfaithful bride, prostituting ourselves into thinking that true happiness is available outside of God alone. So we must be careful to love God more than we love anything else. He's saying, caution, don't cling to the world. Don't cling to what the world has to offer. You put God first. You love God more than anything else. The Apostle Paul, he understood this idea of loving God more than, than anything else. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him. He says, I choose to love God more than anything else. In fact, I count everything else as rubbish in light of, of knowing God and, and, and loving him. So this is what Joshua is saying. He's saying because of God's faithfulness, because of God's love for every one of us, we should be obedient to God's word. We should cling and hold on to him. And we should love him more than we love anything else. There's a few more things that Joshua wants to point out. Look at, look at the last words that Joshua writes to these leaders in verse 14. He says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great way to end his, his charge to the leaders? To end his exhortation? I mean, he reminds the leaders, God has been completely faithful to you. Every promise that God has made has come true. Every minute detail that God has said has come true. God has been faithful in every way. Kind of sounds like this would be a great time to pray and take an offering, right? Sing, great is thy faithfulness. And, and everybody walks out feeling really good about themselves. And they'll go off to lunch and feel real good and dandy moving forward. But Joshua has one more point to make. He says, yes, God is faithful in grace. But God is also faithful in his judgment. Because he continues in verses 15 and 16. 
He says, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and you serve other gods and bow down before them, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Joshua says, yes, God is faithful in his grace, but he also says, yes, God is faithful in his judgment. He says, divine disaster will come upon Israel if you are unfaithful in, serve, in, in serving God. And, and if you are unfaithful and you begin to worship these false gods, if you make the creation God instead of the creator himself. Talk about an impact. Talk about a way to end his, his, his lecture, his charge to the people. He's saying Joshua's last words are saying that the leaders, that God's faithfulness is a two-edged sword. God is faithful in two ways, in both grace and in judgment. I know we don't like talking about God's judgment. We like to talk only about happy things, uh, that God will bless us and that God will make us happy and life will be perfect. But God's word is clear. He has been faithful to us. And in response to our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness to him, he will either bless us or he will judge us. You choose. See, what's fascinating to me, though, is God even shows his unfailing faithfulness and that he never lets his people go. He even pursues them in their sin. He pursues them in their sin. Joshua is saying plainly that the blessing of God depended on whether or not the people kept God's commands. If they, they fight to love God with all their hearts, then they will experience blessing either in this life or the one to come. But if they fight for their lust, if they, if they cling to the world, if they cling to all that the world and the culture and our society has to offer, if they forego the creator for the creation they will be judged. These are the last words of a leader who has a deep concern for legacy. He has a deep commitment that his people would know the truth. And he's calling the leaders. He's saying, you are witnesses of who God is. You are witnesses of God's faithfulness. Therefore, obey his word. Cling to him and love him more than you love anything else. And I think this call is extended to every one of us in here today as well. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what the culture says regarding you, regarding Jesus, regardless of what Oprah says, regardless of what President Obama says, regardless of what Macklemore tells us, there is one true God who made the first move to love each and every one of us. This one true God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we can be restored into a right relationship with our creator. And that relationship, it has the power to change everything. That relationship with Jesus has the power to change everything. It has the power to change a marriage. It has the power to give meaning to life. It has the, has the power to free us from addictions. 
It has the power to change our very life. And because of who God is, because of his faithfulness to us, because he loved us first, we need to respond. Will we obey his word? Will we cling to him? Will we love him more than we love anything else? Because of his faithfulness, will we remain faithful to him and experience his blessing? Or will we choose? Will we choose unfaithfulness? Will we choose to worship anything other than God and experience his judgment? My prayer for this church is that we remember who God is. And because of that, we would respond accordingly. We would say, God, because you have loved us, we love you. Because you have been faithful to us, we will be faithful to you. Would you pray with me?